This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. This is our first ever live taping and I'm your host, Mike Carlin. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to David Winkler. For those of you watching live, I just want to point out that we have a Q&A module active. So please put any questions you might have in the chat, in the Q&A window versus the chat window. And uh, just to introduce you to David a bit, he comes from Hollywood royalty. He is a very successful film producer himself. And if you know the film's creed, Rocky Balboa, the mechanic or the gambler, you know some of his work. And he joins us today to talk about his memoir, The Arrangement, a love story in which he chronicles his time spent as a sugar daddy. And if that's not a term that's familiar to you, that's going to change in the next few minutes. So welcome to Uncorking a Story, David. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm honored that I'm your first live broadcast. Yes, yes. And it figures that we would have a little technical difficulty for the first live broadcast. So it could only happen that way. It could only happen that way. David, I want to start off by asking you the same question I ask everybody who I have the honor of interviewing, which is, you know, tell me, where does your story as a writer begin? My story as a writer begins... In uh, when I was 30 years old, I had grown up in, as you say, Hollywood royalty, but I had gone in a different path. You know, my dad's the producer of the original Rocky and Goodfellas and Raging Bull and, you know, probably one of the most prolific producers in Hollywood. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be a surf bum. So I traveled the world surfing and owned a surf shop. And then when I was about 29, I woke up, I said, what am I, an idiot? Like, is there, you know, I'm going to sit in a small retail shop in Santa Monica selling surfboards. I wanted to be creative. Sold my shop. I started writing screenplays. I had never written a word before, and it's been a constant struggle ever since. And um, all the years I was writing screenplays and then became a director and then ultimately became a producer, you know, I sold scripts and I directed some of the scripts that I wrote. I always felt, though, that I never had a personal enough story in me to write something great. Like I would write uh, a love story and it was kind of like 
by the numbers, you know, it didn't have heart and soul and depth and, and it wasn't personal to me. I read action adventures, I would write thrillers, but, and I never intended to write a book, but when I, and then, you know, a couple of years out of my divorce, I had this relationship that I write about and halfway through the relationship, I remember, and I write about it, I remember having a conversation with this woman, Jordan, at dinner, and I'm like, you know, this would make a great, great book. <laughs> Older man, younger woman, 20 years set apart, he's divorced, doesn't believe in monogamy, finds this website called Seeking Arrangement. You know, she's a beautiful young Instagram model who, you know, needs some financial help. She's trying to make a change in her life, and they embark in, upon what's called an arrangement. And you know, I gave her an allowance every month and, and she became my, you know, de facto girlfriend. I say de facto because most people who go into these relationships, try to keep everything casual, no strings attached. She could date whoever she wanted to. I dated who else I wanted to. And, was, and the only rule I had was that we were radically honest. And then, of course, some crazy things happened. And when the relationship came to, I don't want to say a close, but after a year, it became clear that I had enough material to write a book out of it. And even then I didn't, I was afraid of it. And I hired a ghostwriter and he interviewed me for 30 hours. He read, I had collected all of Jordan and I's texts into binders. I had like six binders this thick full of all the texts and pictures we'd sent back and forth. And he read all those and he turned to me at the end of 30 hours. He said, I won't take your money. He said, you have to write this. He said, it's so personal. You are the only person who can tell the story. And I said, dang, if he isn't right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting is I hear you talk about this. It's, you know, you kind of, you kind of craft this story, right? About, a, about an arrangement, but it's not fiction. This is not, this is not a novel. This is a memoir. So, you know, when you do that, that's, yeah, no, the crafting is getting rid of some stuff. There's no, I didn't have to fabricate anything. It was all <laughs> but it's like, that's a very vulnerable place you put yourself in. I mean, just given, you know, you're a high profile guy from a high profile family in a high profile industry. And did you, do you feel like, did you feel a little exposed or nervous about, you know, putting these very intimate details about your personal life, you know, in, you know, on paper, because it's, uh, you know, it's out there now. Absolutely. I mean, and especially I think when, you know, the book isn't just like some, some sleazy tell-all about my sex life. You know, you know, and people will read, it really is about an extraordinary personal journey, you know, that I went through from, you know, not believing in monogamy, having an open relationship, and being very closed off emotionally, and having never experienced a kind of love that was this encompassing to a completely different man over the course of the relationship. And so, so yeah, I was nervous about putting all those things out, but I also just felt so compelled. Like I had no choice. Like yeah. I knew I had, I mean, it took me four years, but you know, and two of them were during the pandemic, which was very helpful, but I literally had no choice. It was, you know, I knew if I didn't do this, I would never complete, I would never be that. I would never accomplish that goal that I set out for myself as a 30-year-old to write something truly personal. And honestly, as much as I love the movies I've made and, you know, my children are the most important thing in the world, to me, creatively, I would say that, that I've accomplished what I was set out to do on the earth. Yeah. And I, 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 creatively tomorrow knowing, okay, 
I prove that I can do what I need to do. Right. I mean, and it is a, a very compelling, very provocative story. I want to do a little backstory there because you were you you mentioned before you've got a couple kids, you were married. One of the things that really struck me about the story was the the relationship you maintained with your with your ex-wife, you know, the mother of your kids, yeah. which seems like an idyllic, you know, way if you're going to consciously uncouple. It seems like you got that one down pretty well. Would you know just yeah. talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, we were married and and um, you know, we met at a time when we both wanted children and that became sort of the most important thing to us that we overlooked a lot of the other stuff that you need compatibility chemistry and you know after about seven years you know we called it quits and you know part of what i talk about in the book is that i came clean to her and admitted that while we were together i was cheating and i'd actually found this site seeking arrangement while i was married and thought, well, I'm not happy in my marriage, so I'll cheat. And it was a complete rationalization. I regret it. It's not the way I should have handled, you know, my my needs. But I think because I came clean to her in therapy and we worked through our issues before we got divorced, and we, you know, and we discussed and we also talked about all the other reasons we needed to be divorced, not just my cheating. If you ask my ex-wife now, she would say, no, the cheat was just a part of it. Yeah. But you know, what that did was it's, I learned radical honesty and coming clean to her about all the things I did. I swore to myself that no matter what happened in the future, I would never lie, especially to a woman, you know, to have sex. I just would, I would be, you know, I would be incredibly honest. And, you know, one of the things that I felt was because I hadn't been faithful. And, and to be honest, I look around not only Hollywood, but most of the world. And statistically speaking, so few people are actually faithful to their spouses that I just said, I just thought, okay, maybe it's just not realistic. Maybe it's just not human nature to be with one person. And on this site, you know, the great thing about this site is that you can, it's really an interesting dynamic when you go on this site. You know, there's, we can talk about the ways that it's used in unhealthy ways and healthy ways. One of the healthy ways is that, you know, from a first date, you, uh, from, excuse me, that's just my son. <laughs> Making an appearance. From the first date, you are incredibly honest with the other person. They say, these are my needs. I'm having financial problems. You say, well, I don't believe in monogamy. And you actually have the kind of conversation with somebody that most people don't have until the fifth, sixth date. Some people never have. Or never have. I was going to say where they never have that conversation. Yeah. So for me, you know, I know there are a lot of men who use the site, you know, like I did while married to cheat. But what I learned is to use the site as a tool that sort of advances conversations and makes things speed up in such an incredible way that you get to know somebody in such a deep way, so much faster. And, uh, and of course what happens when you are that vulnerable and that honest and that open, you fall in love. <laughs> yeah. It's a occupational hazard perhaps. Yeah. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think a lot of people don't, you know, have those, you know, I know people who've been married for years who have a hard time becoming vulnerable in front of, you know, their partner or just really saying, Hey, these are my needs. You know, for whatever reason, you know, people sometimes, and maybe it's more so men than women, I don't know, but have a hard time saying, hey, this is what I want out of this relationship, or this is what I, I need that you're not giving me. You know, a lot of times we bury that so much, and then it comes out, you know, negative ways kind of 
kind of later on down the line. But, you know, one thing I'm curious about is, I mean, you are obviously a successful guy in Hollywood. You've got a job that I'm sure, you know, if you're at a, a bar and, and you strike up a conversation with, uh, you know, a person of the opposite sex, you know, some people might objectively say, hey, why does this guy need to go onto a website like this and, and then do that? I mean, he could probably have anyone he wants. Like what? So what, what was your, what would you say to somebody who posed that question to you? Well, you know, in reality, you know, Los Angeles is filled with wealthy people. Like going to a bar and saying you're a producer, everybody's a producer. It's not like I'm standing out and attractive. You know, I'm an older man. I'm in my 50s. And I had just come out of a marriage. Like the last thing, you know, I went on Bumble, but I found that everybody saw me as kind of what you're saying, marriage material. You know, like from the third date, they're like, I want to have your babies. I want to have marriage. And I'm like, already done that. I just want to have some fun. I just got out of a marriage. And, you know, yeah, there's websites like Tinder and stuff like that. But again, I'm an older man. I'm not Brad Pitt. I'm handsome and, you know, nice Jewish boy. And, you know, but, you know, I had been on this site and then I got divorced and it just seemed like an easy transition to continue on this site. And just, you know, the difference was now I didn't have to hide the things I could do. And, and nowadays, honestly, everybody's online. I mean, whatever site you're on, if you're single and you're not on the website, I grew up in the days where, you know, you were embarrassed to admit you're online. And now the first thing you do is when you meet somebody, you say, what, what websites are you on? So the answer is you're asking a great question. I asked in my book is, you know, what's a nice guy like you doing in a place like this? Right. The truth is, is everybody's in places like this. And this particular website I think, especially in Los Angeles and Chicago and New York, Miami and the big cities, a lot of people are on it and they just don't admit it. They just don't talk about it. There's a veil of secrecy around, you know, this website, but it's incredibly popular. I mean, I think it has like 15 million members. And, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many times now that I've been open about my experiences on it, people say, oh, yeah, I'm on it, but don't tell anybody. So it really isn't that strange of a, of yeah. a place for anybody in their 50s to be now. Sure. Or 40s, you know. You know, it strikes me if I were a better business person, uh, David, I would have had them sponsor this episode. But, uh, you know, that, that's another strike in, uh, against me. <laughs> no, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how they, they, would, they would feel about... I haven't contacted them about the book because, you know, I'm so really honest about some of the things that happened in the book and not all the things that happened on the website are kosher. I mean, people really do use it to, to cheat and to lie. And I know a lot of women who have had some unfortunate experiences who have met men. You know, my, my handle was the rare gentleman because women would literally tell me you are like one of the few gentlemen we meet on the website. So, you know, I'm pretty brutally honest about, about what happens on the site. And, um, you know, I don't know if they would like having all their secrets told. You know, I think they present themselves as, as, as the ideal. And there are a few people like me who use it in that way, the way they intend it. But there are a lot of men who simply use it as straight up prostitution. Yeah. You know, they go on. And, you know, the whole point of an arrangement is not a one night stand. The whole point of an arrangement is to be in a relationship with somebody where you're supporting them financially you have a commitment to them. You are, you know, it's not, yeah, some people want it discreet and some people want it no strings attached, but it's supposed to be a relationship, you know, long-term 
it's not supposed to be one night where you meet somebody and, and you make a deal for $500,000 and meet them in a hotel room. But because it can be used, there are a lot of people who use it for that alone. And I'm honest about that. And I don't know if they want to, you know, would they want to admit that that's the way you site is used by some people? No, fair enough. Fair enough. You're kind of writing this story. I know you wanted to write your story. That's something that was personal to you. And you kind of talked, you know, before about, you know, maybe having some some struggles writing something that maybe felt authentic. And this was a vehicle, you know, with which you, you could do such a thing. As you were writing it and as you were going through the writing process, I'm curious, what did you learn about yourself? About, you know, as kind of writing this, getting this all down, going through the editing process. I'm sure you had some insights into your life. I'm curious as to what some of those are. Well, I mean, there's two parts to that question. What I learned about myself and what I learned about writing, I think. What I learned about myself was, you know, the things that I, I was able to, I learned a lot about myself in the relationship. And in writing the book, I was able to express what I learned in the relationship and clarified it and honed it in the book. I learned, one, that my heart is incredibly resilient and that I can go through very difficult, challenging, dramatic events and keep my composure, that I can get my heart broken and still fall in love again afterwards, that it's not going to, you know, it's not going to ruin me. And um, I, learned, I learned about vulnerability and intimacy. I didn't know what intimacy was. And I had had some, what I call romantic anxiety, you know, not quite sexual dysfunction, but something similar. And it's kind of interesting when you read the chapters, they're called romantic anxiety, how it happened. And I got over those things and I learned how to handle those things through communication. I learned the biggest lesson of all is just that I'm now a completely monogamous person. Like I couldn't imagine ever having another open relationship in my life, you know, and I learned, I learned where my lack of desire for monogamy came from. I mean, I really like as I was writing the book, I kept seeing myself as a 16-year-old child. And I'm like, I don't want to put this in. What is this? You know, why am I, why does this keep coming up? Why is this story about something that happened when I was 16 important? And through the book, I grappled through it. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, now I understand where my distrust in monogamy came from, from this relationship I had with a woman who cheated on me when I was 16 years old. And I had to get over that through the writing. And it's kind of embarrassing. Like as I'm writing, I'm like a 50 year old man writing about a 16 year old heartbreak. But you know, this was a wound that I had never sure. dealt with. And and as far as when it comes to writing, you know, I don't think if I'd known it would have been a four year writing process, I would have done it. Like I didn't know what it was like to write a book. I read a lot of memoirs. A lot of there's a great by Mary Carr, How to Write a Memoir, a great book that talks about that. And the biggest thing I learned about writing is don't critique yourself, is just write. Sit down every day. It's going to be terrible some days. It's going to be great some days, but just write it and write a first draft. And when it's done, celebrate for five minutes and start your second one. Right. <laughs> and then celebrate for three minutes and write the third one and um, just sit your butt in the chair. And I think that's I think that's what a lot of people have a problem with. I don't, I'm lucky that, you know, I had a successful career and there was the pandemic. So I have the time to focus. And I don't think many people understand that writing is just, is, it seems easy. You read it, in, you know, in a week, why should it take four years to write? But 
to narrow your ideas down and to write it in a poetic and, and colorful way is just incredibly painstaking. And, you know, I just kept saying to myself, don't, don't ask whether it's good or bad, just finish the goddamn thing. And now I'm capable that it's done of saying what I did well and what I didn't do well. And, and, but, you know, that's what I learned about writing is just write. Yeah. I just, I want to go back to something you said about that 16 year old, you know, version of yourself, you know, that relations you had, that would be characterized as an attachment wound, right? So you you had some kind of wound there. Um, Uh And I've had, you know, previous authors on the show who would characterize that as an attachment wound. I just want to just sort of, you know, praise you a bit for, for uncovering that. And I mean, obviously you uncovered it you know, through your writing process, but I think the fact that you, you did so, and now you kind of did a, a complete 180 from, Hey, not into this monogamy thing at all to now I can't really think about any other type of relationship. I mean, there's a little redemption for you in there, especially for the people who might be listening to this, you know, either now or later saying, Hey, this guy kind of sounds like a jerk with this whole monogamy thing. But it sounds like there's like a little redemptive moment in that story. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like a completely different person. I did a 180 and and I really hope that people will will give the book a chance and will 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 read it and and not throw it against the wall and say, you're right, he doesn't believe monogamy, he comes from Hollywood, he dates actresses, you know, he's got money, he's spending like that, you know, I tried to write it. You know, I do come from movies, so I wanted it to read like a suspenseful love story. I didn't want it to be, you know, 50 pages of my childhood and then get a story. Like the first page is my first date. Like I yeah. plopped right into my first neat dressing for my first date. I wanted to really be a very entertaining and well-told story. But I'm sorry. I- no, no, no. I was praising you for a redemptive moment. But one of the things I tried to do is I tried to present to the reader, this is who I am at the time. And I don't give away hints and say what an asshole I am. Cause at the time I didn't think I was an asshole. Sure. So I want you to follow along my story, but I do hope that they will finish it and get to the end and realize, Oh my God, the person in the beginning is not the person in any shape or form that we met on the first couple of pages. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. So there's some, in other words, there's some good character development in there. It's all about that. And it's not, you know, even though, even though, you know, part of the story is me handling some of the mental health issues that, that, that Jordan brought to the relationship, because there are some severe ones, you know, not just one or two, but some, you know, like, this is not just, this is not the memoir that is, oh, by the way, she was a drug addict, an alcoholic or something. This is multiple issues that came up in our relationship that will surprise you. And, um, you know, but, you know, I learned that I could, I could handle these things. And uh, I hope people will, you know, will give it a chance and understand that this is really a memoir about my own problems, not about her problems. It's about how I changed. I don't know how she changed. Yeah. Uh, fair to say you have not kept in touch? No, we, we kept in touch for a while. But, you know, one of the lessons that I learned you know, I think there's a lot of lessons that I learned in this relationship that are kind of universal. And one of the lessons I learned about heartbreak is that it doesn't work when you're communicating with your ex. <laughs> you can't you, you can't get over it while you're yeah. trying. You can't really be friends. You need to ultimately separate completely and and heal yourself. And you can't do it with an ex partner at all. Yeah. So we had so 
we had a few texts and, um, but even those texts were crazy, like things that happened in the book, you know, she texted me, um, you know, good luck in the book. I totally approve. And then she texted me, why are you writing a book about me? You know, she, I mean, there's so many, so many back and forths and now we don't speak at all. Yeah. I'm curious because I know you've written screenplays before. Obviously, you've produced uh, movies and directing. Uh, Big differences that you've noticed between, you know, let's say drafting a screenplay versus writing your memoir. How would you kind of compare and contrast those two very different things? Well, one's fiction and one's not. You know, that's the first thing. I mean, you know, in a screenplay, you, you know, you're creating everything and you can, you know, you can take liberties with everything. My job in this book was to be so brutally honest. That's the theme you see over and over again, radical honesty. That, you know, you know, occasionally I would take events and combine them just for the sake of, you know, economy. You know, if we had a conversation one week and then finished it the next week, I would have, we all, we finish it in one conversation rather than two or three, just because otherwise people would be bored. But, you know, I literally took most of our dialogue comes from conversations that we had in text. And I even had some texts from some of my friends who gave, were kind enough to give me the conversations I had with them over the course of the relationship, because you often tell your friends something you wouldn't tell the woman. So, you know, half the dialogue is literally words that came directly from things we talked about. Yeah. So the real, in a screenplay, you can be as inventive as you want, but in a memoir, especially, you're trying to craft an entertaining story, but, but do it, be as, as religious as you can to the truth and the reality of what happened. And luckily, what happened was so, out, so tumultuous and so crazy that I didn't have to, you know, in fact, there are stories that I left out that just didn't have room for. <laughs> <laughs> that could be for uh, the special edition, <laughs> the behind the scenes edition of the arrangement. Well, the book sounds awesome. I, I mean, I've read it, so I have a little bit of an insider knowledge to it. But before we wrap up, I do have some questions that I ask all of my guests, trying to get to know them a little bit more as people. My first question would be, David, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were a kid? Oh, I, I loved Magnum P.I. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Selleck doesn't disappoint. Love Magnum P.I. Don't ask I, me why. I just love Magnum P.I. And I like sci-fi. I watch Star Trek. I'm a big sci-fi buff. Sure. Did you see the reboot of Magnum? Launched I did. Three or four years ago? Not the same. Tom Selleck <laughs> was a... You know, it was a, is a, a relic of a bygone era where, you know, the Marlboro man, literally before he became, you know, Magna Pelli, he was a Marlboro man. Yeah. So it doesn't have the same appeal. Yeah, no, I know. I, my wife and I watched it. We liked it. I liked uh, what they did with the Higgins character in that Perdita Weeks. They kind of made her a badass, but uh, loved Magna. Oh, my older brother, Greg. What's that? Yeah, they made it a her. I didn't know that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, they did. My older brother, Greg, though, we, he worked for American Express and down in Florida. We'd go visit him and he was always home by three o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm like, this guy's got the greatest <laughs> job ever. Like, why is he why is Greg always home at three o'clock in the afternoon? Well, he finished all the sales calls, but he got home at three so we could watch reruns of Magnum P.I. Yeah. And I got I always got a kick out of that. Love the red Ferrari, too. Not going to lie. That's what drew me in. Of course, there's a wish fulfillment. You know, who, who doesn't want to spend their days you know, chasing bad guys in, in Hawaii? That's right. I'll, I'll sign me up. I'll do it. If you could bring anyone's memoir to life, I mean, you've just written your memoir. If you could you know, think of somebody whose memoir you would like to, to bring to life on the big screen, 
Who would you like to do? Can you think of somebody whose life you'd want to chronicle on uh, on the big screen? I don't know if they would make if they would make. I mean, I think mine would make you know a good. There's so much material. I'm thinking that I might turn it into a miniseries. It's too much for one movie, and it's something I'm actively considering. I don't know if they'd make good movies, but as far as like entertaining stories, right now Will Smith's uh, memoir is incredible, and it was incredible before he slapped Chris Rock. Yeah, as you read it, you understand partially why he did what he did. You know, he explains his issues with feeling powerless against his father, but it's a great memoir. He's also a great you know, actor. So as he reads the memoir, you're just, you know, I would listen to it on tape because you get the benefit of having, you know, when I read my book, it's me talking, but when Will Smith reads, it's Will Smith and it's, you know, it's funny and, and, and it's surprisingly full of pathos about his, his relationships with his, with his family. And then Matthew McConaughey's uh, memoir is just, again, I would listen to it on tape because you know, when you read it, I, I had started to read it and it's like, hey, man, you don't get it. But when he <laughs> tells and you find out things that Matthew went through as a young man, that you would never have guessed. It's really, really entertaining. Whether it would make a good movie or not. Mm, can't say that. Yeah. No, I like the Will Smith answer. I think we need to hear that story. I think more people need to hear that story just to put his behavior in context a bit because it was so unfortunate how that all yeah. kind of came to an end. <laughs> Really, it really is unfortunate. It doesn't, honestly, you know, it doesn't excuse what he did, but it will help you understand it, that you realize what he was doing was he was not standing up for his wife. He was standing up against his abusive father. Yeah. Very good. Christina wants to know, do you still surf? Rarely. I will go to, I will go to Mexico or I'll go to Hawaii and I'll surf when the water's warm. You know, in, in my 50s now, I can't go to Malibu and, and chase, you know, tiny waves when water's cold and there's little grommets, you know, the kid surfers fighting for every wave. I just can't do it. But, you know, two or three times a year, I make a trip. I just got back from my family and with my ex-wife, like we even traveled together as a family and we went to the North shore of Oahu and surfed there for a week over spring break. So, you know, I get my fix and I'm about due for a trip to, uh, to Southern Mexico. I love, uh, Salilita and Punta Mita, which are these unknown spots in Mexico that are just beautiful. You know, everybody yeah. goes to Cabo, but like, and Punta Mita actually has a, it, as you read, it has a, a big plot part in my book because I always considered it my happy place. And I brought Jordan down there to, to surf, to teach her how to surf and something horrible happened. So well, I, you know, I don't surf for two reasons. A, I've never tried it and I'm scared. B, I'm afraid of shrinkage in that cold water you're talking about. So, you know, I'll give you <laughs> yeah. the George, I'll give you the George Costanza answer. <laughs> you know what you do? You go to, you go to Waikiki on the South Shore of Oahu and you, you walk on the beach and there's so many people with these really soft long boards and they'll take you out where the water's warm and they'll push you out. So, you don't know, paddle and you'll get it and you'll love it. Well, I will. I will take you up on that. Not that you were offering me to go with you, uh, <laughs> but I'll take you up on the advice. What lesson about publishing do you feel like you learned the hard way? Kind of going through your your memoir, kind of going through the publishing process. What's one lesson, if any, that you learned the hard way? Well, I mean, geez, it, I got really, really fortunate. I mean, you know, 
it's really hard to get published. It's really hard to get published. Nowadays, I think most people self-publish. And I did the, you know, I did the standard thing that most people do, which is I wrote query letters to, there's a great service that called like the copywriters. I think if you just Google copyright service or publisher service, that goes through and and you give them a synopsis of your book and they tell you the names of agents or of publishing houses that have sold material similar to yours. And they give you the agent's name and how to write a query letter. And I wrote 30 query letters to every publishing house. And, you know, then, you know, got one or two, you know, responses, you know, refusing me. And I was just settling in for to think that I would self-publish because even though I didn't think it would get as many people reading it, I didn't want to wait a year and a half for all these queries to come in. When I I saw a book cover that I liked on another book and I was glancing on the inside and it said that Rare Bird, the publisher of of it, is for hire for, they say we don't accept unsolicited submissions but we are for hire for marketing and merchandising purposes, meaning if you have a book and you bring it to them, they'll help you sell it or put on events and stuff, I guess. So I wrote the email and I said, listen, can you tell me the name of the, of the graphic artist that created your cover? Because I would really like to hire them for my cover. And, you know, mentioned a little bit about my book. And I got an email back immediately from this company, Rare Bird, which is a small publishing company in, in Los Angeles. And they said, hey, your book sounds interesting. Can we read it? <laughs> um, I said, sure. And, and then they called me on, on Monday, literally over the weekend, and said, we'd like to publish your book. So, you know, I went through, you know, thinking it was going to take a year and a half to just by, because I'd written an email to somebody asking for the name of the artist on the cover, I ended up getting it published. So I think, you know, the advice I give to most people is to self-publish. I think these days you're more in control of it. The only people, the only publishing companies that really buy books, I mean, Rare Bird is a great, it's perfect for me. They're, you know, if you look on the website, they say they're, they're looking for sexual, sexual related material that happens in California. So for me, it's perfect. But most publishers are looking for, you know, if they want a memoir, they want it from Matthew McConaughey. If they want fiction, they want it to be, you know, uh, woman's fiction or, or, you know, something like Fifty Shades of Grey, you know. So it's very hard to get published. I would say most of the places, most, you know, if I hadn't gotten that one email, I would have self-published it myself. Yeah. You know, there's great services you can sign on where you pay like $5,000 and they, they put together a whole package of how to get it, you know, designed and 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 print it up and market it on Amazon very, very well. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story. Just come, kind of query about the, uh, you know, the cover art, uh, the artist leads to a, a book deal is, uh, I love that. That's, um, you know. Down on it, you know. Yeah. So if that happens to people, just self-publish. Just admit that we're not, you're not going to get it published. And don't wait a year and a half hoping some publisher will give you some you know, half million dollar advance because they read your book and loved it. It just doesn't. It's like getting a lottery. Yeah. Well, yeah. Half a million dollar advance. I'm sure there's some uh, New York Times bestselling authors who are laughing at that figure right now. <laughs> yeah. it's just, you know, I always say, you don't write a book to get rich. That is for sure. Yeah. What's some advice you'd give somebody who comes up to you and says, you know, David, I'm thinking about becoming a sugar daddy. I'm just 
thinking about, you know, seeking an arrangement of my own, A, would you tell them to, hey, explore it? Uh, what would you tell them to look out for? What advice would you give that person? The first thing I'd ask them is why? Because there are so many sorts of sugar daddies and there's so many sorts of arrangements that I'd ask them, you know, what is it you're hoping to get? Like you asked me, what's a nice guy like me doing in a place like this? I'd ask them, you know, what are you looking for? And why do you feel that you, you need to pay for a relationship when you might be able to get it for free? For me, my answers were, as I said, you know, I already been in that dating pool. I'm somewhat of an introvert. I like being online. I don't like going to bars and clubs and parties, surprisingly enough, coming from Hollywood. So... And then I would say to them, if they still felt like they wanted to do it, I would say, yeah, sign up for, you know, don't go hitting girls up on Instagram and sliding into the DMs. Women got enough of that. Go on to the site, create a profile, and just be really, really honest about what you're looking for and be really careful and slow. And it's the same thing for if a woman comes up to me and says, I want to be a sugar baby. I've had friends who said, wow, we read your book. We want to be one. I'm like, well, it's not so easy. You know, do your research. There's Reddit forums, read my book. And I don't say it's sell book, but you know, it'll give you an idea of how things work and what's the norm and what's not. And, uh, and then just say, be cautious because like everything, it's how you do it. You know, if you go in with the best of intentions and care and caution, you're likely to meet somebody really interesting. If you're just, you know, in it for a night, then you can just go on back page and find a woman for a night, you know, and you can, you know, find a madam. And, you know, I'm, I believe that sex work should be, should be legalized. I'm sex positive as long as it's not, you know, as long as it's not, you know, human trafficking. I think what people, what women do with their bodies is their own business, but there's a lot of people who use the site for that. And I don't think that's what the site's meant for. So I would ask them, you know, what are you doing? Are you just looking to have fun for a night or are you really looking to make, to find, a, to have a relationship? Yeah. You know, you wound up sort of developing feelings, you know, in this relationship. Do you think that that's the, the, the rule or the exception, you know, that ultimately, even in, a, in an arrangement like this, where feelings will develop? I mean, is it possible to have a, a purely transactional relationship or, or do you think your experience is, is more the norm? No, I think mine, I'm the outlier. I think it's rare to have to fall in love. I mean, I wanted to marry Jordan. I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. And so, and I believe whatever mistakes that she made, she did too for a while. I truly believed. And I've, I've been on the site before that and after that and fall in love. So, you know, I know it's possible, but it's not, it's not the norm. Most people go on for, what, for no strings attached. The guys don't want any drama. The women just want to get some financial help, but really are not in the place where they're ready for a relationship. You know, the way I say it is that, is that money is a tool. And before I met Jordan, I used money as a tool to keep people out of my life. I had casual relationships, no strings attached, no commitments, you know, multiple women, open relationships. I didn't want anybody in my heart. Love as a way of just, you know, I didn't just develop feelings. It was like lightning bolts, you know, and, and um, twin flame soul stuff. And I do think that's unlikely and difficult to find, but it's happened to me a couple of times, but you know, it's very, it is very difficult to transition from a transactional relationship out of one. You know, once you have been, you know, helping 
somebody financially, they feel so supported. It's hard to suddenly turn to them after a year and say, you know, I just want to have a normal quote unquote relationship. They're like, wait a minute, I thought it was normal and you've been giving me an allowance a couple thousand dollars a month. You know, why would I stop? So there, there are potential problems that I've encountered. And, but I think that for me, it's become sort of the norm. Like I've been through it enough because I've had enough of these relationships. I know what's happening and how to handle it. I think the first time it happened for me was just overwhelming. And ironically enough, the money was never the problem. Like we never, there was never an issue. You know, I love supporting her. I think it's traditional. You meet a, you meet a young woman and you know, they want to marry you and have your babies. You don't want them to go to work. If you're, if you're a smart man, Yes, you can fall in love with a woman who, is, who has got her own career, and that's wonderful. But in my experience, if you want, you know, the best mothers are stay-at-home mothers. And how can you have a stay-at-home mother and not support her? So, you know, it's, it's a very traditional relationship. I think that most of the world is, is still based on arranged marriages, arranged relationships. Yeah. Last up. If you could uh, get in your DeLorean, you know, get it up to, what was it, 88 miles an hour, go back in time and whisper some words of advice into your 16-year-old self, what words of advice would you give you to the 16-year-old David Winkler? Well, I think, I think for me, that's a really interesting question because as I mentioned earlier, something happened to me when I was 16. So my advice is specific to my story. And then there's sort of a general advice. The general advice I would give a 16-year-old is just find mentors, find people who are older and wiser than you and listen, you know, because you think you know everything at 16, but the truth is, you know, so little. And I wish that I had, you know, asked more questions of my father and my mother and friends. And when I met an older person, instead of sitting there and talking about the weather, I would say, so tell me what, like, I'm interested in writing. What should I do? Like, I, I was never, you know, I grew up in a very prim and proper family and I didn't want to intrude on people, but I wished I could go back to 16 year old just with more open eyes to learning rather than, you know, play. Yeah. Specifically to me personally, you know, when I was 16, I got my heart broken and I just shut down. A woman cheated on me and I just closed down and said, I never want to feel that pain again. And that led to, I mean, it was such a strong wound that led to a lifetime of really being what I call in the book, hard David. I mean, I had no emotions and I was, I was very closed off to vulnerability and intimacy. And even though I got married and loved my children, you know, I was not capable of true, I didn't feel loneliness and joy and pain and pleasure the way I do now. And it wasn't, and it took me 40, you know, took me 40 years to almost 40 years to end this relationship to look back and say, okay, it's time to open up again. And I became soft David. And the book is kind of the, the overall arc of the book is me going from hard David, who is charming and fun and confident and, you know, can fix anything and, and successful, but has no idea what it's like to feel pain and pleasure to a man who's brought down to his knees, but is so thankful and so grateful for being able to feel. So if I could go back to 16, I would, I'd say, David, this is not the last love you're going to have. You're getting heartbroken. Get back out there and open your heart. And I mean, it's not so easily controlled, but I would tell myself, be open-hearted and don't let this bring you down, close you down and turn you into a emotionally hard person. Yeah. But if that uh, younger David listened, we wouldn't have this book right now, would we? 
we would not have this book. So there you go. Well, the author is David Winkler. The uh, book is The Arrangement, a love story. It can be purchased wherever books are sold. Uh, David, any uh, social media handles you want to throw out there, websites uh, people can go to? My Instagram is David Adam Winkler at Instagram. Just my name. Easy enough. All right. Well, David, thank you for taking the time to uh, stop by and corking a story. Loved our conversation. I want all of our uh, listeners to know that our next live episode will be on June 29th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time. And you can all join me when I speak with Kelly Leonard, the Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. You can just go to uncorkingstory.com, tap on the events link and register. Limited space is available. David, thanks so much. This was a great conversation. All the best with the book. Thank you. Good talking to you. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.